Good morning. It's Sterling Fox sitting in for Jill Bennett on this family day long weekend. It is 7.06 on the West Coast as we head to the nation's capital where we're joined on the line by uh, newspaper columnist Mark Bonacoski. He is a member of the Canadian News Hall of Fame and a uh, much read columnist with Post Media's Sun newspaper group and one of my favorite Canadian columnists. Mark, good to talk to you again. Good morning. Yeah, it's been a while starting. Good to see you. It has been a while, and, and for the benefit of our listeners as to maybe uh, why it's been so long, we should probably let people know that uh, you went through a, a bit of a medical issue, had some heart problems, and are finally uh, back in the saddle. And God bless you for getting through it all, Mark, and it's great to be able to read your stuff again. Yeah, it's good to be back. Thank you. No problem at all. Lots of recent <clears throat> columns and musings on this uh, national SNC-Lavalin business. And the most recent column yesterday entitled, When a Liberal Scandal Becomes a Hashtag, It's Big Trouble. Elaborate, please. Well, you know, this hashtag lav scam uh, came into being about a week and a half ago. And everything that is written about the Trudeau Liberals and their dealings with Judy, Jody Wilson-Raybould and, uh, and the, the lab scam uh, uh, trial that uh, uh, they're trying to avoid, uh, everybody is tagging lab scam on the back of it uh, because uh, nothing's answered. Right. And that, that, and, 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 the and less... at that point, at that point we, we, we still don't know. And, sure. and, you know, there's an old uh, politics 101 uh, that says... Uh, uh, if you have to keep explaining, uh, you keep on losing. And so far, there's only one side that's doing any explaining, and that sort of thickens the the muck even more, doesn't it? Yeah, and what well, it's, what is happening too? There's been attempts at at, at th- throwing this off. There's been uh, PMO insiders uh, putting out the Canadian press that Jody Wilson Raybould, when she was in cabinet, was a thorn in the side of cabinet. Yeah, I heard that. But, that she was uh, difficult to deal with, mm-hmm. that she berated fellow cabinet ministers publicly in front of them, uh, and uh, she was a, literally a pain in the ass. And so this became a story. And then there are those, and then it's slowly but surely there are some coming out saying, no, she's a great woman, she's this and this and that. Mm-hmm. You got the, then you've got the First Nations involved because she's indigenous, uh, and uh, it became a whole... Uh, cluster fest that uh, and is still going on. Sure. We have on Tuesday uh, this parliamentary justice committee meeting again, hugely diluted in that uh, they they refused because they're liberal dominated. They refused to have Wilson Rebold herself testify before it. They refused to have Gerald Butts, who's the principal secretary for the prime minister, who's behind all this meddling, sure. supposedly, and Katie Telford is chief of staff. They're all been uh, not. They're all not going to uh, testify because the liberals don't want them on the stand. Right. So, uh, in in the sense that the justice committee is basically uh, taking its its marching orders from the prime minister's office. After all, the majority members of the justice committee are from the government side of the house. They will do what they are told, and obviously, what they've been told is bury this thing. Yep, exactly. And then you had the the the, the idiotic statement by the the chairman of the of this committee, uh, Anthony Housefather, coming out the other day and saying, you know, you know, there's a lot of big judicial files in Quebec, you know, that require your attorney general and justice minister to speak French, yeah, you know, maybe because uh, 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 Wilson Raybould doesn't speak French, that's why she got 
booted out of uh, of that portfolio. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's like suggesting that all of a sudden uh, uh, Justin Trudeau woke up one morning and realized three and a half years later, whoops, Jody Wilson-Raybould doesn't speak French. Mm-hmm. Better get rid of her. By the way, it's, it's important to note, just for the record, Mark, that Mr. Housefather, the head of the Justice Committee, happens to be a Montreal-area MP, and his writing happens to contain the headquarters of SNC-Lavalin. Yes, and he's also, it was also the writing that Pierre Elliott Trudeau himself uh, uh, controlled. Right, exactly. So now it's interesting. You're in Ottawa and I have a perspective that the rest of us, particularly this far west in Vancouver, Mark, don't enjoy. And so help us this morning understand what they're saying across the river and right across the province of Quebec, because while English Canada is sort of setting its hair on fire, but the improprieties involved going right back to the burying of this remediation uh, legislation in the omnibus bill, it all just stinks. In Quebec, they're going, people, what is wrong with you? This is about Quebec jobs. Just give your heads a shake. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There is major political uh, figures, uh, people in the intelligentsia, people in the uh, newspaper columns who say, back off from Lavalin. Uh, these uh, transgressions happened uh, uh, in a narrow, all, all those company executives and all the players and those scandals are, are all gone now. Uh, they've set up a new uh, uh, executive. Uh, they've uh, cleaned up their act. And why, why punish, uh, you know, it's up, upwards of 3,000 uh, workers in Quebec. Uh, and, of course, there's, there's thousands applied around, uh, 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 employed around the world. Uh, but the headquarters are in, as you mentioned, in, in, in Montreal. Sure. And uh, there's a big pushback. Uh, so... Uh, Curiously, as you know, the the new Justice Minister and Attorney General is a rookie Montreal MP law professor by the name of David Lametti. Right. Uh, And so uh, stay tuned. The contrast between the reaction in, frankly, English Canada versus Quebec. And it's rather dramatic uh, where you pointed out in your columns and on this program in our last segment, uh, the Prime Minister's office uh, did a few drive-by smears, a little character assassination on Jody Wilson-Raybould. In Quebec there, she's not being seen as the heroine or the victim as she is in predominantly English Canada. Uh, In fact, in Quebec she's being seen as an obstructionist. Why would she stand in the way of doing what had been set up to happen, uh, what's wrong with her? And the rest of Canada is, of course, we're all waiting to hear from her. And tell us about her choice of lawyer, because she chose a retired Supreme Court justice to help her to figure out what she can and can't say. Well, you know, uh, Thomas Cromwell is who she chose. Yeah, she chose him. She, she'd hired him to be her consultant on this. And, uh, uh, he's a, a, a very distinguished individual uh, in his own right, and 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 uh, it just shows that uh, how how big this thing has grown. That she figures she needs counsel mm-hmm. uh, of that uh, of that uh, magnitude. But uh, you know, just going back to before we broke for for commercial, we talked about uh, uh, the new uh, um, attorney general and, and justice, Mr. David Lamenti of Montreal, right. MP, uh, and as you mentioned, uh, an MP where in his home running has the headquarters of Lavalin. 
you can bet you something's going to happen there because there's an election coming up and and Quebec is vital uh, if the Trudeau liberals are expect to uh, <clears throat> to regain power and uh, they'll do anything they can but the stuff that they're saying, you know, happened years and years and years ago when there's a different executive and they're all gone and it involved Libya and Gaddafi and, uh, and a whole bunch of $135 million in bribes to Libyan officials. There's more recent stuff. And there's also stuff on the home front. There's a, a chap uh, who uh, <clears throat> was the former a federal civil servant. He was the head of the bridge authorities across the country, as well as director of the uh, a couple of bridges in Montreal. And he's uh, been convicted of accepting $2.3 million in money from Lavalin uh, for fiddling with, the, fiddling with the Jacques Cartier Bridge in Montreal. That's, that's more recent. Uh, then you bring in the, the, the trial of uh, a vice admiral, uh, 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 Norman into this. I hope you would. Yes. Okay. Uh, and and you'll see cross references of of uh, similar act, similar fact stuff happening where the prosecution has been accused by the defense counsel, uh, a very good defense counsel, by the way, uh, Marie Hennon from Toronto, oh, right, who sure. represented Jean Gomeshi. Yes. Um, they they're accusing the PMO and the Privy Council, which heads which uh, governs supports the PMO. Of of uh, uh, collusion in in uh, in uh, uh, refusing documents that would help Norman's defense, uh, they've accused them of uh, using code names and uh, and and alternate names to uh, for Norman, so that when people do it access to information, they don't get anything they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've accused them of holding back unredacted notes from meetings between uh, the. Uh, uh, PMO and and uh, and uh, the prosecution, uh, it, it, it smells like Lavalin. Mm-hmm. And you're talking, of course, and uh, this as as if it had anything to do with anything. Trudeau tried to convince us, and and the direct quote I believe is: Had Scott Bryson not left the cabinet, Jody Wilson Raybould would to this day be the uh, Attorney General and Minister of Justice. I I, I mean that's a red herring. Uh, but my point here, though, is beyond the red herring, one has nothing to do with the other. Scott Bryson has gone to a lucrative job with Bank of Montreal. But I suspect we're going to hear a lot more about and from Scott Bryson than he would care to offer up, Mark, because uh, this Admiral Norman case, Mr. Bryson lobbying on behalf of his New Brunswick uh, shipbuilding patrons, the Irvings, uh, could be in the middle of, uh, well, a bit of a pickle. Yep. If this goes to trial, the Norman case, now Marie Hennon is trying her best to keep it from going to trial because you're only in the preliminary hearing stages of this of this case in, in here in Ottawa. Right. And But if it goes to trial, it'll be smack dab in the middle of the election campaign, much like the uh, like much like Senator Mike Duffy was during the Harper uh, uh, bid for reelection. Right. And and although you know you can say that Duffy led to the uh, to Harper government being defeated, it certainly was a, a smear happening at the time because everybody was salivating to get rid of uh, of the uh, of the Harper government. Duffy was no fan of, uh, of of had no fans in the media because he came from there. Yeah. Uh, and, and it really did create a bit of a stew. Now, uh, same thing will happen with Vice Admiral Norman. If he goes to trial, it'll be right in the middle of the election campaign this fall. 
Mark, I want to just uh, just get your uh, opinion on this, because it seems from a distance that there's a gamble going on. The Trudeau government is gambling. You're right. Quebec without Quebec, no party wins a majority government in Canada ever. So the liberals, uh, recognizing the weakness of the NDP in Quebec, uh, are looking to scoop most of the seats from that province. If they combine that with Toronto and a little bit of Vancouver, they could at least get a minority government in the next election, and it's likely that's what they're going to have to settle for. Does this look like that kind of political gamble by the Trudeau government at this point? Absolutely, it does. And, and, but, you know, the, there's a third card in this play, or a fourth card in this play, too, which we don't know how it's going to go, and that's Mad Max Bernier. Mm-hmm. And what if how many conservatives he's going to draw away from uh, the the vote for the Shear government? Uh, that's the best thing that ever happened to uh, uh, liberals, uh, you know, because it could it, they're they're praying for a split, uh, and uh, and that's why they're going so heavy in Monk, in Vancouver, I think. Uh, to defeat uh, Jack McSing and Burnaby South. Right, yeah, and there's certainly a lot of that going on, uh, right? And, of course, the advance polls began this weekend. Mr. Singh yep. voted yesterday. Uh, Mark, I'm just uh, this this whole thing as it's developing, uh, clearly the X factor is Jody Wilson-Raybould. Do you expect that Ms. Raybould is going to speak? I certainly hope so, and I think that Cromwell is going to find some way for her to do it. I mean, he's not he's an expert. Uh, uh, on this sort of thing. So uh, as her lawyer, uh, I, I think uh, because of the, the, the drilling she's getting, the, because of the, the bad uh, uh, images that are being thrown at her, uh, she wants to come out of this looking good yeah. and uh, for her political future and, and for her personal uh, sense of, uh, of, of self-worth. And I, and I think that Cromwell's going to find a way to do it. Interesting. You get the impression that Jody Wilson-Raybould isn't for one single second in the least bit afraid of Justin Trudeau and his unelected prime minister's office staff. You get that feeling, don't you? Yes, you do. Yep. Just find a way to break loose. Well, it's going to be very interesting. Mark, always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. So glad that you're back in in the saddle and healthy and writing some wicked stuff. And I look forward to a chance to talk to you again real soon. Very well. And joined from Kamloops by Professor Jeffrey Myers, who is a lecturer in law at Thompson Rivers University and a good friend of this program. Jeff, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Good to be with you. It's great to have you back with us, Jeff. And I know uh, I want to talk about this lab scam, this SNC business, and we'll take a look at the Trump national emergency. But first and sure. foremost, on a, on a Sunday morning, you have had a chance to dive into the deep end of uh, the report issued by the Speaker of the B.C. Legislature, Bob Plekis. And you've, uh, well, not entirely impressed with uh, some pretty detailed allegations. Tell us why. Well, it's funny because, you know, I'm getting a lot of questions about this because what had happened was is that I was teaching the tort of, um, and a tort, by the way, for those non-lawyer listeners, is a form of civil liability that's covered by a situation where someone's not in a contract. Um, and, uh, you know, typically we think of negligence, but there's all kinds of different torts out there. You know, for example, assault, a battery, false imprisonment. One of the torts that I was teaching in the class that happened to be really on, really very much at the time that the Plekis report emerged, okay. was a tort called misfeasance in public office. And and what misfeasance in in um, in public officer, in public offices is where somebody um, there are kind of um, there are there are a couple elements to it that 
uh, somebody who's a public in public office, and you know how you define the who's in public office or not. You could arguably, certainly an, an MLA or an MP would be in public office, but also potentially an officer of the house, like the like the clerk or the sergeant at arms. Of course, right? yeah, sure. And 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 in this case, if if, if one of those individuals, the same thing would apply to the speaker, deliberately misuses um, um, power in order to in a way that would harm. A plaintiff. Now, that could be an individual. It could be the citizen, and possibly in creative way of thinking, it could be the taxpayers, the citizens at large. Sure. And they have knowledge that that conduct is unlawful, or they're reckless about it. That is, that can be actionable in tort. So I thought, well, what an interesting way to think about this problem uh, than through the lens of the Plekis report. So I told my students, I've got a hundred plus extra pages of reading for you to do this week, <laughs> and they were, of course, not thrilled. But nevertheless, they did it. And they found it riveting. We had an interesting conversation about it, and then in some of the subsequent. Um, uh, questions I had been asked about it, um, in, in the local media in Kamloops, I, I had commented that um, I found that the role of Speaker Plekis to be curious in the whole thing. I know he had been receiving um, independent legal advice about the best way to proceed, and I'm not suggesting that the advice he got was was inaccurate or wrong, or, right. that, or that there's anything necessarily suspect about his conduct. I was just saying that I personally, as an outside lawyer, who was looking at it, found the, the whole thing odd. I found it odd that Speaker Plekis, you know, sort of, uh, he reminded me a bit of, if, if any of your listeners are familiar with, John, with Jonathan Swift's um, book, Gulliver's Travel. Oh, of course, where, yes. Yeah, where Gulliver's amidst the Lilliputians, and he's commenting all the time, well, look at these strange little folks do, and, and it's all kind of at a step of remove, but really the story is about him, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the Plekis case reminds me a little bit of that Gulliver's Travels in the sense that he's reporting on all of these events, these lavish trips, these lavish expenses, and these suspicions he has about them while he's participating them, participating in them and acknowledging that you know he's new to the job and he has to figure out the... Uh, the rules of the road, as it were, relying on particularly Mr. James, the clerk, and that he sort of goes along with these things for some period of time before blowing the whistle. Just, as an uh, example, they, they, yeah. on a business trip to London, uh, <laughs> ex- expensive suits were ordered by some members of the entourage. Uh, Mr. Plekis was invited to do the same, and as I understand it, declined. But again, no yeah. whistleblowing there. That, I guess, was just sort of going into some kind of, well, it's time to gather some evidence here. It's not maybe enough to blow the whistle on, but you can't blow the whistle without a file full of evidence. So that would be the justification, I suspect, Jeff, from, it, it, from the I suspect as well. I suspect as well. I just found it odd that um, you know he effectively is acting almost as an undercover agent exactly. in these contexts. Yeah, yeah. It's a very unusual circumstances, and I think that the most of the um, the um, the types of spending that were going on were should have been obvious um, uh, violations of the public trust, if not possible criminal wrongdoing. And, and of course, now we're having an independent investigation. There may well be RCMP charges arising out of this. And I certainly don't think, you know, Mr. Plekis is a, is a villain in this thing, or he necessarily, based on what we see now in terms of the allegations, if they're borne out, and we still haven't heard a response from either the Speaker or the Sergeant at Arms, I'm not saying he's, you know, of the same piece with them or anything like that at all. I'm just saying I find the whole thing bizarre, and I think there's more information that's going to come out here 
And um, we're, we're really not we're not yet clear on what's exactly. And happened. one of the players in this whole thing, this uh, this Alan Mullen, the assistant, uh, the Mister uh, Plekis has hired to do some of his uh, footwork and and gather yeah. more evidence and so on, is turning into a, a major player in all of this. And uh, again, there's a lot of doubt as to what's going on. There has, however, been a special prosecutor appointed, and that I suspect Jeff is where ultimately uh, things are going to uh, uh, coalesce around that individual. Rather than Mr. Plekis and Mullen, it's possible. It's also you also have to understand that we're in the early. Well, I don't know how early stages we are, but we're we're in the pre-charge stage of an RCMP investigation right yes. now. Yeah, so there's significant criminal aspects potentially um, involved in all of this, um, and you know there there are also other kind of questions around um, norms of public law, including the degree to which it appears that um, some of the officers of the house were partisan liberal appointments. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of moving pieces in all of this. Um, um, uh, and, and we'll have to see how it unwinds. But I thought it was an interesting way to think about uh, the sort of misfeasance in public office, which is not well known necessarily uh, by people. But and it, it's not clear that it even arises here because who would be the person harmed? Would it be the taxpayers as a whole or the population as a whole? But the actual facts of the case are suggestive of that um, of that tort. Right. And of course, the, that the tort or the, the principle behind the tort is the, also the si- a similar principle to recall legislation in the case of elected public officials, right? Well, that's an interesting way of making the connection. Well, for starters, the tort, again, is a private law right of action. So it's a bit of an odd fit in the public law. It, 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 but this specifically targets where a public official misuses their power. Now, the question of recall, I'm not sure the connection you're making there. I think what you're saying is because if people are dissatisfied with their members or want to send a message that they've acted improperly, they can utilize the recall system. Is yeah. that what you're yeah, saying? Essentially based on uh, not just uh, emotion, but, you know, a certain, yeah. a certain degree of evidence. Oh, I see what you're saying, right? So the, the, the fact that there's a process to go through exactly, whereby yeah. people have to reach a certain threshold. Yeah. Well, yeah, we do try to protect people's, I mean, we do try to tr- protect the, um, you know, the people's individual rights, and we try to protect people from being assailed in public office for, um, without good reason. You're yeah. a- I, I'm really curious, Professor Thompson, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Professor Myers that, uh, of Thompson Rivers University, uh, what did you think, what did you make of the choice by former Justice Minister and Vancouver MP Jody Wilson-Raybould of, yes. of uh, the Honorable Thomas Cromwell, former Supreme mm. Court Justice, mm-hmm. as her legal counsel. And obviously they're huddling uh, to come up with something that Ms. Wilson-Raybould can say, because you get the feeling, Jeff, she's just itching to say, to take her turn. Well, I mean, she, look, there's a lot of things to say. For starters, it's, I, I think she's very, um, I think in this whole scandal and based on the information that we have at this stage, she's looking to my mind as a lawyer, very good and above board. Mm-hmm. And everything I've seen of her in the past is there. And I think um, the fact that she's got Tom Cromwell, who's a very well-respected former Supreme Court justice, sure, yeah. who's basically, she's brought in as her legal advisor. And one of the first things she did um, you'll notice after she brought him in, was resigned from cabinet. Yes. Right? And the reason that I think that that happened was because the prime minister had said, look, if she had any objections to my government or what was going on here, she wouldn't still be sitting in cabinet, a.k.a. in that uh, role as um, minister of veterans affairs. And right. I think probably when she heard that, she said, well, I do have a problem. And Cromwell probably advised her then that she out. should resign her yeah. cabinet post. Now, the big question which is hanging over um, all of this, right, is – whether there's a question, is there an attorney-client privilege there? Because, of course, the attorney general 
um, is the is the government is the lawyer for the government. So right. that there's a relationship of privilege there, and that privilege is held by the government um, or by cabinet and the prime minister. So in order for it to be waived, it's the holder of the privilege who has to waive it. So yes. it would have to be Prime Minister um, Trudeau who would waive it. Now, when lawyers, whether they whether they represent any member of the public or whether they represent the government, are protecting the client's privilege, they have to be they have to err on the side of caution. So even if there's a possibility that that privilege has been waived or it's sort of on the line, you have to act very protectively around the privilege. That's our ethical duty. Okay. In this case, what happened was that uh, Mr. Um, Trudeau suggested that he wasn't approached um, around the deferred prosecute. He, he didn't he didn't pressure. He said he didn't pressure. Um, or otherwise exercise inappropriate. Direct um, was a direct, big word, too. Yeah, Another direct, big verb there. Yeah. Speak directly, um, directly interfere with Ms. Raybould on the decision over whether to direct the public prosecution, the director of public prosecutions to bring the SNC Lavalin prosecution out of the a criminal system and into the deferred action system whereby it wouldn't have a criminal record and it could retain its business. Um, that is, and so that's now being contested with the prime minister. Um, and then subsequently the prime minister came out and said, well, we did talk about it, but there was no improper or direct pressure. So that's, um, basically the problem now is, is the question is, can she come forward and say her piece as you're saying, which it seems like on all the facts is going to be a different, um, is a different, uh, question is, uh, is going to be a different story altogether, oh, namely yeah. that there was improper pressure. Now, um, the fact of the, 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 the the reality, in my opinion, as a lawyer, is that, and I've spoken about this with some of my colleagues, and I think that that attorney-client privilege, maybe um, my, my colleague Craig Jones described it as a, a red herring. I don't know if I would go that far, but the problem is, is that if Mr. Trudeau is already talking about mm-hmm. um, what he said, and that's called opening the door, right? right? If you talk about if you get in a dispute with your lawyer and then you talk about what the lawyer told you, right. uh, relative to what the lawyers told you, you've waived the privilege. So I think it was that an, imp- opening that an implied waiver by by dis- uh, disclosing his side of the conversation. That implies that he's already waiving the whole privilege business because he's talking about a privileged conversation. What's more, what's more, um, also, and we've talked about this sometimes in connection with the Donald Trump investigation in the states, and the same is true here in Canada. Is if a lawyer, if a if a if a if a lawyer is if a client asks a lawyer about, or a lawyer is advising a client, um, for example, how to break the law or to act illegally in some way, that's also not privileged for obvious. Of course, reasons, yeah. Right? So there's so there's there's certain questions. There's also the question of executive privilege because executive privilege is just this idea that cabinets discussions are confidential. Mm-hmm. But there are times and there have been histories like for example Paul Martin and the Armory Inquiry and other times in history where prime ministers have waived executive uh, privilege in the interest of sort of letting sunlight be the best disinfectant, right? And so I think Canadians are looking to Justin Trudeau also on this front to sort of follow through on the persona that he's presented to us as a person who's sort of above reproach on these ethical issues. And the thing is, you know, reminding Canadians of past scandals, and it's really noxious because it suggests that, you know, a large corporation, um, which is engaged in very serious criminal wrongdoing, um, can be given a free pass, or not a free pass, but at least be prevented from having serious criminal uh, implications and potentially having to go out of business because of their economic importance. Now, there may be an argument for that, but what the law says is that the, the, the prime minister or cabinet, they can't direct, as, as you say, and you're right to pick up on that language, the attorney general in their role as the chief law enforcement officer of Canada yeah. to um, prosecute or not prosecute. That's not something that they can do. So they can talk about it. There's an open line of communication where they can talk about the impact, sort of make their case. But it, it has to be very gingerly around the question of what's being directed, because that's an overstepping 
um, of the bounds of the of the executive, and it's a kind of offense to the rule of law, right? And it, it becomes very, very complicated in countries like Canada, where the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General are the same person, right? Yeah. Because the Attorney General, of course, is the Chief Law Enforcement Officer of Canada. They have to act independently in the interests of justice. And what they do in that role is that they, they, they oversee at least the Department of Public Prosecutions, which is somewhat arm's length, but who decides on who to prosecute and when to prosecute. The Minister of Justice, of course, is, is a high-ranking um, political minister um, whose job it is is to help uh, define policy for the government and to help um, – <clears throat> And figure out, um, you know, what what kind of legal reforms are needed in the country. And so, on one hand, a political person, and on the other hand, <coughs> a judicial officer. So those two roles can come into conflict. As we turn our attention south of the line, and I should probably let our listeners know that at one point, at least in your legal career, you were licensed to practice law in both Canada and the United States and have a more than uh, average grasp of what happens down there. So let's talk about executive privilege as it applies to the president of the United States and his ability to override the elected Congress, a co-equal branch of government, and declare a national emergency, apparently unbeknownst to all of us and we're pretty well informed people there's an invasion going on jeff yeah um well article one section nine clause seven of the u.s constitution says quote no money shall be drawn from the treasury but in consequences of appropriations made by law uh mr trump may be in violation of that um article um Although there have probably been a lot of violations over the last 40 or 50 um, years of that article, the presidency has become more concentrated in terms of its power. Uh What makes this situation very unusual is that the president is using an emergency powers law, which was brought in in 1976, to allow the president in certain circumstances to... um, to spend money and do things without the approval of Congress, usually in an emergency situation um, involving war or financial crisis. It's been invoked many times in situations which you wouldn't find surprising. Mm -hmm. Where it has never been invoked, and the reason this is really a serious thing, is it's never been invoked as a way of short-circuiting Congress's decisions not, not to allocate not to appropriate money for a particular purpose, but to actually do an end run around the decision of Congress. Remember, Congress has the power of the purse, right? Famously, James Madison said that um, that 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 this power of the purse is, in, is he called it a weapon, and he said it was the immediate the Congress was the immediate representative of the people, and that its job under Article One, Section Nine, Clause Seven was to prevent the president from spending monies that it wasn't approving. That that was its, the essence of its checks and balance. And most constitutional law scholars in the U.S. agree on that. So, using the emergency powers at the very moment you're acknowledging not getting the monies allocated to you by Congress that you've asked for for something, and then admitting in the same breath that it's not necessary to do this is opening himself up for serious litigation, and this is clearly going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. No question about it. And it was the speech the day after declaring the national emergency in which he said to an assembled uh, gathering, including the media, I I really didn't have to do this, but, you know, it was the route I chose to get things done more quickly. Well, that really undermines the the emergency uh, that was so so critical in the first place. I really didn't have to do this. He's kind of shot us one of those feet clean off his body with that remark, don't you think? Well, I mean, it's, it reminds me, again, of one of my favorite things. If you ask about the obstruction of justice in the context of the Mueller investigation, I mean, what Mr. Trump had said, you know, in front of the entire American public on NBC News with Lester Holt after the firing of James Comey was basically an admission of obstruction of justice. So, 
know, Mr. Trump's strength is in keeping his internal monologues internal. Mm-hmm. And it was obvious when he came out, especially when he came out immediately to speak in the Rose Garden, um, after um, when he made, made this announcement that he, he wasn't looking at his notes. He was clearly speaking extemporaneously. Right. And much of what he said were like mad ramblings, yep. right? So, again, we could even talk about, you know, whether this raises, and some scholars have said, again, once again, this is yet another example of perhaps the need to consider the 25th Amendment. I mean, it's just not... Um, He's erratic, and he's, his behavior is, is, is not consistent with somebody who's really thinking about their words. Well, clearly, as you point out, this is going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Already, challenges have been filed to uh, the protest and uh, uh, to try to defer this national emergency declaration. And it's, uh, it's going to unravel in the courts, and it's going to be most interesting. And I'm quite looking forward to getting your take on it as this thing unfolds before our very eyes. Jeff, thanks for this. Great to talk to you again. It's been a while. It's been a while, Stuart, and I'm really glad to be on with you and your listeners. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Uh, We've been noticing lately at Vancouver Park Board meetings a certain, uh, well, digging in of heels on the matter of uh, Sunset Beach as a permanent location for 420 celebrations every year. Uh, The bottom line uh, from several Park Board commissioners is this was originally designed and created as a protest point for people who were advocates and proponents of the legalization of cannabis. Well... It's legal. So what's to protest anymore? Dana Larson, who is a cannabis activist, one of those who has been advocating for legalization for quite some time, has a bit of a rebuttal to the park board and is with us this morning. Dana, hi. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's good to have you back with us. So uh, what's wrong with this? I mean, the park board has a point. It is legal. Dana? Well, 420 is going to be great this year, actually. It's it's on a Saturday. It's our 25th anniversary, and it's the first one under legalization. So I'm expecting uh, a big turnout and a really successful uh, protest event. Okay, now they say that, uh, I guess, 2019, this, this 420, is the subject of current negotiations. But they seem to be digging in their heels that from 2020, next year and beyond, it's gone. So... What what is the state of the negotiations right now regarding a couple of months from now? Oh, well, they've already accepted we're going to be there this year. Uh, the motion they pass is to, is to tell the city to find us a new spot for next year. Yes. The park board, the park, the previous park board actually passed a very similar motion in 2017. Uh, but the reality is that there there's not really any other sites in the city that are appropriate for an event like this. And you know, the park board, it's not just about Sunset Beach. They don't want any cannabis event at any park in the city at all. And that seems to me pretty discriminatory against cannabis. Isn't this plant legal now? Mm-hmm. Are we supposed to be? Shouldn't there be more cannabis-related events under legalization and not less? So it seems a little backwards to me. Well, and of course, their concern is the uh, is the physical aspect of what happens to Sunset Beach when 40,000 people show up for a, a smoke-a-thon on a sunny afternoon. And on a Saturday, Dana, it's pretty safe to say there'll be more than that. Well, isn't that good? Don't we want people using public beaches and parks? Uh, you know, it is. It does. Uh, there's been some grass damage uh, in two of the three years that we've been there. We were unlucky with a lot of rain. Yeah. Uh, last year, we really put an effort to put a lot of protective cover down. And so, although the park was closed for a while, it wasn't closed that long. And um, you know, we do our best to, to keep the place space uh, the safe uh, the space safe. And actually, last year we became the city's only unlicensed protest, which covered all of the costs to the city and park board other than policing. So we paid over $60,000 to cover sanitation, 
to cover uh, the park rangers, the health and security, and mm. every possible expense. You know, we're trying to be as responsible as we can. But so, I think we have a right to use public spaces, or just like anybody else. And 420 is really one of the city's most popular community events. I mean, a lot of people really enjoy this event and look to look forward to it all year. I can remember the attention to detail last year, especially with the uh, artificial covering, and it made a difference. And the park board even actually acknowledged the fact that those efforts did pay off. So the 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 one point though that they really seem to be stuck on for the 2019 420 celebration celebrations this April is selling. They don't want any retailing of cannabis products on site on park ground property. Well, I mean, this, this, the making of cannabis available uh, is a big part of what 420 is all about. It's part of our protest to create what legalization should look like. And, uh, you know, the reality is we've got a, a city where politicians are calling to end the stigmatization of drug users and to create a safe supply. And 420 is really about a lot of that. We want to end the stigma on cannabis users and make cannabis available to those who need it. And, uh, you know, we're going to keep doing that. And I don't think the park board really has the power to tell the police uh, how to do their policing. And the police in Vancouver have made a decision, which I think most Vancouverites agree with, which is to not prioritize cannabis offenses. There's right. a reason why there's so many dispensaries in the city also. Uh, so trying to tell the police they've got to shut this all down when the police don't really want to do that, uh, it's just not going to happen. So okay. I'm not sure why the park board is pushing beyond their authority like this. Well, let's move the conversation forward to the, to the, the reality of uh, this date, which is cannabis products are legal. Most edibles still aren't, but that's coming. Nonetheless, you talked about the large number of dispensaries available in the Metro Vancouver area, especially in the city itself. Uh, Two questions out of that, Dana. Why and why are we still waiting for an approved, proper, licensed place like they have several of in Alberta and other Canadian provinces? Not Ontario. We're ahead of Ontario, but that's not doing much. So what's going on? Well, I mean, legalization has got a lot of problems and a lot of flaws, and those are some of the things that we're protesting. Uh, the, there's a real shortage of, of legal cannabis in Canada, which is because they haven't licensed nearly enough uh, growers and producers. They've been really restrictive on who can grow cannabis, and uh, it's become unaccessible for, for many Canadians, many mom-and-pop growers who are hoping to be part of legalization. And we're seeing the same thing with Vancouver dispensaries, where the city bylaws are so restrictive that the the, a majority of shops in the city can't transition into the legal system because they're they're not allowed to continue operating. So right. there's a lot of problems with legalization. There's some good things to celebrate too, but the idea that we're not able to protest anymore because there's been a change in law that's just not on. There's a lot to protest and a lot to complain about, and we're going to be talking about those things on April 20th. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as those dispensaries that you referenced a few moments ago, now the city, we keep hearing from the city that, you know, there are, our tolerance for this uh, is, is reducing um, weekly, and eventually it's going to, we're going to start issuing summonses and going in and closing some of these places down. Those sort of threats from City Hall have caused uh, some dis- dispensaries to decide not worth the hassle we'll just wait until we get our provincial approval and we'll step aside until that happens to not jeopardize our license Uh, but others are going oh come on 
Well, we're trying to keep serving our patients, you know. I mean, that, that to me is really the, the crux. Our, our dispensary is designed to provide medical cannabis to those who need it. And, and the reality is that medical users are having a harder time getting cannabis now than before October 17th, before legalization. Um, there's, uh, there's a problem with access. And the, the big licensed producer companies are directing their cannabis to the recreational market. Some of them are directing it overseas. The patients that were relying on them don't have access anymore. So, you know, I'd love to get a license and be part of the legal system, but I also look at my members and I don't want to have to turn them away and tell them we can't provide them with their cannabis products anymore. Uh, and so we're going to keep operating uh, under the current system and just keep providing cannabis as long as we can. And I hope that the legal system gets better uh, so that we're able to join into the legal system, but also keep doing what we've been doing, which is providing quality medicinal cannabis products to those who need them. Final question to you. And it's great to talk to you again. It's been forever. Uh, we're now hearing a new referenced supply issues, and we're seeing some dispensaries in provinces like Newfoundland and other of the Atlantic provinces closing because of their uh, inability to get sufficient supply. So they're closing and now running sort of part-time operations. And yet we hear of Canadian cannabis growers doing deals to supply international clients in Europe and uh, other parts of the world. So uh, what's going on there? If, they, we don't, if we don't yet have enough to supply the domestic industry, how on earth can growers with a straight face promise to have tons of supply for foreign customers? Well, that's absolutely a big problem. And I think Germany especially, a lot of Canadian cannabis is going to Germany. I guess they're able to get a better price from the German uh, government than they are in Canada. But if I was in charge of this, I would have put into their contracts that they can't export any cannabis until the Canadian market's demand has been met. And, you know, it, legalization is a big, complicated issue. We understand that there's going to be some problems and delays, but I hope they will focus on getting their system working and in place rather than focusing and sending in the cops to shut down dispensaries that are only doing what we've decided is deciding needs to be done, mm-hmm. which is to provide a safe source of legal cannabis for those who need it. And so, you know, I, I, they got to focus on getting their own house in order rather than coming after us. Dana Larson, thank you for this. Uh, get, recommend a website to our listeners where they can uh, keep in touch with what the, the 420 plans are for this year and other relevant cannabis news. Uh, Vancouver420.com. You can find out about our event there. And, um, you know, DanaLarson.com if you want to find out what I've been up to. Good stuff. Dana, thanks for this. Good to talk to you again. Hey, always a pleasure. Thanks uh, for having me. Dix, joined on the line from Victoria by Global BC's chief political reporter, Keith Baldry. Good morning, Keith. Morning, Sterling. Well, the big news story today, one of them, and there are several, but one of them involves former BC Premier Gordon Campbell. And it's not a story I'm sure Mr. Campbell appreciates being associated with. Tell us what you know about this story, please. Yes, this involves a allegation of uh, sexual assault laid by a former employee of the Canadian High Commission in London against Mr. Campbell uh, when he was serving as uh, Canada's High Commissioner to uh, the United Kingdom. This dates back to 2013. She alleges that she was groped by uh, Mr. Campbell uh, at, uh, at Canada House at Trafalgar Square. Right. Um, and now Scotland Yard is, uh, or Metro London Police have confirmed Global News they are conducting an investigation. They haven't identified any suspects of anything. Uh, and Mr. Campbell's representative has sent us a note saying uh, that uh, this was 
uh, investigated some years ago and was completely dismissed without foundation that uh, everything's been resolved. Okay. The Telegraph newspaper in London is uh, reporting that she came for the complainant, uh, a Dutch-Canadian woman, a 54-year-old woman, uh, came forward uh, in the wake of the Me Too uh, movement, and that, that's what why this has resurfaced. Now, th- again, Mr. Campbell's representative has uh, declared that this was all uh, investigated and examined and found to be without foundation some years ago. So we don't know where this is going. We don't know where it's headed. Uh, we'll just see where it, where, where it goes. Uh, there's an allegation made. Uh, innocence uh, has been uh, protested. And we'll just see where what happens next. Well, you know, I'm thinking if there's anybody in British Columbia who might have a chance to uh, tap into and find and get a quote from Gordon Campbell, it would be Keith Baldry. Any, <laughs> any luck on that file? Not yet, Mr. Campbell. Mr. Campbell's really cut off all ties, quite apart from this incident. I, what I've discovered in, in, in sort of probing this issue is that he's cut off all ties with British Columbia. He, he really has no connection here anymore. Oh, okay. Uh, he uh, doesn't have much contact with friends here. He's, he and his wife, uh, Nancy, I think were divorced some years ago. Uh, I don't think he has much remaining links to this province. And I, I'm, I'm told he has told people that he regards uh, going back to B.C. as a non-starter, that he thinks he's just not welcome in British Columbia anymore, that uh, things were so bad by the end of his, his time here as Premier that there was no point in coming back to this province. I think that's a bit of an overstatement, but nevertheless, uh, there you go. He's, I think, based back east. Uh, the Edelman the Consulting Firm, he had been doing contract work right, with, yes. uh, since July, mm-hmm. issued a statement yesterday saying they have suspended that contra- contractual up, um, arrangement with Mr. Campbell pending the outcome of this particular investigation. Interesting stuff. Now, as far as being unwelcome these days back in B.C. for Mr. Campbell, uh, we have a situation evolving in Victoria, Keith, that you're very close to that may, in fact, provide considerably more substance to Mr. Campbell apprehensions about being welcomed back in his home province as uh, Bob Plekis, the speaker of the legislature, continues to investigate. He promised that when he finally reveals his findings, we will basically lose our lunch. Uh, that's uh, And so uh, the digging continues. The speculation, of course, is rampant. What can you tell us by way of updating the file, if anything? Well, Del Fleckis, the speaker, uh, has promised uh, another report to come in response to the counter um, response to his re- first report from the clerk of the legislature and the sergeant at arms. You know, so Fleckis made his report, uh, which contained allegations, detailed allegations against Craig James, the clerk, and uh, Gary Lance, the sergeant at arms. Right. Those two gentlemen responded with their own counter counter attack, saying, "No, this is those, here's an explanation for each one of those allegations." Plekis has now uh, responded with a, a uh, promise to make uh, uh, public another report, which will counter the counter attack against uh, against him. So it's a tit for tat right now okay. on that front. There is, of course, the police investigation uh, overseen by the special prosecutors. That is supposed to, uh, you know, it's unfolding as we speak. We don't know where that's headed. Mr. Plekis has insisted something major is going to happen on that front sometime in March. Uh, but right now it remains, a, uh, on one level, a tit-for-tat argument between Mr. Plekis and those two officers. On another level, a police investigation. And then you have the other separate issue 
uh, where his office is signaling Morris to come on some aggrieved ex-employees of the legislature who right, say he, they were uh, poorly done by. And he's put out a call for whistleblowers. He's actually looking for people who are in that aggrieved category you've just described, Keith, and saying, well, if you've got a beef, tell me about it. Yeah, and that's where I think we have to be a little careful. I mean, some Sometimes people are let go for cause, uh, and uh, and particularly in the political arena, it's not like you're. It's not like a factory where you've got um, you know fairly straight job guidelines. Right. The political arena is uh, you know you, you you live and die in this place sometimes at the whim of your political master, and it's not necessarily always a, a clear cut employee employer relationship. So we'll see where Mr. Pluckett comes up on the comes up with on that front. I wanted to ask you about this special counsel business. Now, Canadians across our country are very familiar with the term these days because of course of the Mueller investigation into the Trump business going on. He's a special counsel and he's in the news every day. So we're used to the phrase. I'm understanding that it's not one, but in fact, two special counsels have been appointed in this matter with the overspending allegations in British Columbia. What can you tell us about one or two individuals? Do you know who these people are? Yeah, we know who they are. Uh, they've acted as uh, one of them has acted as special prosecutor before. So what, what, the way our system works, and it's evolved over the years, there is a pool of, of lawyers uh, who agree to act as special prosecutors if they're asked to do so by okay. the criminal justice branch, right. the Attorney General's ministry. They are appointed in potentially politically sensitive cases, which involve officials who may be in the public eye, may be paid for by the taxpayer. Um, and just have a, a political element to them, whether it's a politician, whether it's a senior bureaucrat, whether it's a police officer, whether it's a uh, just anyone who's sort of not like you and me in terms of where they are employed mm-hmm. in politically sensitive or taxpayer sensitive cases. And that's why uh, that's when special prosecutors are appointed. What's unusual about this, uh, Sterling, we have one we have one case we think involving two table officers of the legislature, yet we have two special prosecutors. Yeah. We usually only have one. And special prosecutors just won't comment on the nature of their job. So we, it, there's an air of mystery to this. Why we have two instead of one, uh, that will be explained at some point when this shakes itself out. The, one of the problems with the special prosecutor uh, system, I find, having covered it for so many years, is it, it is a very lengthy process. This can, can drag on for years. Right. And sometimes I wonder whether the person at the, at the center of the probe of the special prosecutor doesn't pay a special price that the special prosecutor, being a special prosecutor, thinks, well, in all, in all things being equal, I think we've got to charge this person because it's a special prosecutor. And if it looks like I'm not charging them, maybe I'm, you know, I'm covering it up or something. Mm-hmm. And that's, why, that's one of the flaws, I think, in the system is that it, it's supposed to take politics out of the equation but I'm not sure it's necessarily fair to the person being the center of the probe because I think the, the, the balance tips against them when it comes to weighing whether or not charges are in the public interest. Right. Uh, Keith, you've got to take a break here, but uh, just before we do, you mentioned March. Would that be a report from Mr. Plekis due in March or some kind of preliminary remarks from the special counsel in March? Well, Mr. Plekis seems to be hinting uh, that is, this is going to be something from the police. Oh, in okay. March, that, that, again, uh, Mr. Plekis has proven to be at least um, 
you know, uh, unpredictable. <laughs> so we'll see what, exactly what he means by this. But that's that's my takeaway uh, from him is that it's going to be something from the police. Let me quote, Keith, before we get you uh, back on the radio, too, the, the opening of a column that you wrote recently. Quote, as the inevitable resumption of protests against the Trans Mountain Pipeline project hovers into view, it will be interesting to watch a growing schism between the environmental protest movement and various First Nations. While the protesters find it easy to take on natural resource companies and various governments, they may find it a much tougher go to pick a sustained fight with First Nations who support the very projects they oppose. And it goes on to describe the the nature of the fight. Numerically, Keith, uh, in terms of First Nations support versus uh, protest uh, of the pipeline, gas or oil, what's the status in B.C. this morning? Well, in terms of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, there's more than 30 First Nations that support the pipeline. They have economic benefits agreements with Trans Mountain along the route. There are, of course, a number that are vociferously opposed to the right. project, mm-hmm. particularly in Metro Vancouver. On the LNG pipeline in the north, it's unanimous. Uh, every First Nations along the pipeline route uh, has secured a, a agreement with uh, with uh, LNG Canada uh, with uh, in terms of uh, economic benefits. And what I find interesting and why I wrote the column is that I think what we're seeing now, there's evidence that First Nations are starting to speak out about this. Yes. And particularly on the LNG pipeline, and I think we're going to see it on the Trans Mountain pipeline as well, where they're saying, look, you know, our people are mired in deep-rooted poverty. Uh, this is not, uh, you know, people in, living in Kitsilino who come out to protest have no idea of the, of the, of this, uh, the depth of poverty that uh, some First Nations find themselves in, particularly in the north. And so you've got uh, Crystal Smith, who's uh, the chief counselor of the Heisla in, um, in uh, the north, uh, the, one of the, the head of the LNG, uh, First Nations LNG Alliance. She's also spoken on a former first uh, counselor of the Wet'suwet'en uh, band in the north mm-hmm. and saying, look, and they're, taking, they're now doing op-ed pieces. They're making public speeches. Uh, they're denouncing or decrying the Union of BC Indian Chiefs for, saying, for presuming to speak for them. And so we're seeing, I think, emerge, uh, Sterling, what I think is going to be an, an interesting development, which is First Nations now speaking out, saying, no, enough's enough, forget the protests, forget uh, you know, your, your entitled suburban values, we have work to do with our people, and that means securing economic benefits agreements for things that we think are going to work for us and will be environmentally safe. And it's a it's a developing story, and I think it's one to keep an eye on because I think uh, inevitably the environmental movement is going to be taking on the First Nations in this province, and that is as I wrote in that column as you just read, that is a very very tougher road to hoe than, than it is to take on Chevron or or Trans Mountain or the provincial government or the federal government. This is uh, this is a, a much more delicate situation, and I think it's going to be a challenge to the environmental protest movement to, to sustain that fight. And, and in terms of that movement, Keith, um, is there an equal level of, of uh, opposition to uh, the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline and to the natural gas project up north, or is one enjoying a little more or less opposition than the other? Well, I think the LNG pipeline has way more support, less opposition. Okay. Trans Mountain has more opposition, there's no question. And again, as, as, as you get closer to where the pipeline terminus is and where the tankers begin, that's where the opposition becomes much more 
uh, profound and much more entrenched. But as I say, uh, First Nations are split on this issue. Uh, but, you know, I remember starting, I was in the 1990s, I went to Germany with Mike Harcourt when he was premier. Uh-huh. Uh, and we, we did a tour of Germany. And this is when the War of the Woods was unfolding. Oh, right. And we went, to, well, we were in Hamburg, and we went to a huge town hall meeting uh, where Greenpeace figured they had stacked the room with protesters. Indeed, Greenpeace sort of dogged Mr. Harcourt everywhere he went fighting the forest companies. Uh-huh. And I'll never forget that when George Watts, who was traveling with Mike Harcourt, he was the chief of the Nuchalnath Band on Vancouver Island. And he suddenly took over the room and said, look, my, I'm you know, First Nations chief. I, my people work in the woods. And suddenly the, the, the sentiment in the room, the opinion in the room shifted away from Uh, attacking Harcourt and the forest companies to siding with George Watts and First Nations, where he said, I'm in charge, you know, our people depend on this industry for our livelihood, how dare you challenge us this. And in Europe, First Nations have enormous uh, credibility. And uh, suddenly, I remember sitting there, literally next to Zipporah Berman from Greenpeace. All right, yeah. When she was just starting out. And I said, well, Zipporah, what are you going to do with that? And she went, oh, my God, we can't compete with that. Sure. And that's an example where the environmental movement can be on very uh, thin ice when it comes to taking on First Nations because public sentiment is not going to shift to the environmental protest movement in a fight with uh, a lot of First Nations. I only have a minute left, Keith, and I want, I want your thoughts on this. These very articulate messages that are coming from First Nations leaders and communities with respect to support for these pipeline projects, is part of this a backlash, uh, almost uh, in anger, of having been what they feel in some degree co-opted by the protesters in the first place? Well, all the First Nations, of course, they're opposed, so they're everybody's opposed. And they weren't even to begin with yeah no i think it is a backlash i also think it's a it's a waking up of the fact that this is an opportunity for a number of these first nations to seize the day and really get economic benefit agreements we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars here uh, that would not be on the table otherwise and so you've got whether it's you know uh look at ernie cray on twitter i invite people from the from the stolo and chiam band uh, in Chilliwack. He's very articulate on Twitter. Ellis Ross of, of the Heist Laban on Twitter as well, is a, a, who's now a BC Liberal uh, MLA. They're starting to speak out, and they're sort of encouraging other First Nations leaders to speak out as well, that this is not, you know, Stuart Phillip doesn't speak for everyone, they say. Right. Uh, there's more voices here, and I think this is going to get interesting because uh, they're speaking out in a way they haven't spoken out before. Well, we'll keep an eye on it and, and count on you uh, to, to, to help us to do just that. Keith, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure, sir, and take uh, care.